And now we find the Israelites in the wilderness in Exodus chapter 16. So let's read here. Just going to read the first uh, 20 verses of this chapter. They set out from Elam, and the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given to you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. And whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it until the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. I'm also going to read verse 30. I didn't put that on your handout. So the people rested on the seventh day. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. This is God's word for us tonight. It was um, that brilliant manager, Michael Scott, who said once upon a time, I just happened to watch this last night with my wife, and that's why it's fresh on my mind, but he said, do I need to be liked? Absolutely not. I like to be liked. I enjoy being liked. I have to be liked. But it's not this compulsive need to be liked, like my need to be praised. Michael Scott, always so honest, right? Thing we, I, I, you know, my wife actually doesn't like the character. Well, I mean, the humor of the character of Michael Scott kind of gets at her, but I love Michael Scott because 
I think what Michael Scott shows us why he's such a brilliant character, he shows us what we're all really like on the inside, and he just lets it all hang out. And it's embarrassing, it's uncomfortable, and beautiful all at the same time. We can easily see these kinds of things in ourselves. We have these longings, we have these needs, we have, let's call them soul cravings. Uh, Maybe you don't think of your, you think of something like that, but we have these things that deep within us that we long for, that we desire, that we think about. It influences what we do, it influences what we commit our time to, influences things that we say, how we dress, how we socialize, how we talk, um, you name it, right? We have these things always kind of going on inside of us. And there's a question that I think this chapter tonight answers for us, and it's this. The question is, how does God respond to those things within us? Well, interestingly, whatever they may be, whether good or bad, interestingly, what we see in this chapter is how God answers them. And it's actually a theme. It's not just a one-time thing. This is a theme that becomes, this is something that becomes a theme throughout the rest of the Bible, that God provides God knows, God sees, God hears the things that we need and want and crave, and he provides. He doesn't always provide the way we thought he was going to provide. He doesn't always provide what we want, but he provides what he knows is good for us. And that's what he does tonight, because there's longings and there's desires and there's hopes and there's dreams deep down within us. That what God will continue to say to his people throughout history and what I would suggest you, he's still saying today, that they are things that only he can provide for. And so in patience and in mercy and in grace, he comes to those things and says, I will provide for your needs. So I want to see this in three ways in this chapter tonight. Grumbling, receiving, and resting. Okay, so the first one is grumbling. This actually, chapter 16 uh, if you look at, if you have your Bibles, you can look at 15 and 16 and 17. This story of manna from heaven actually is, the, is in the middle of three stories. And what all three of these wilderness stories have in common is grumbling. The people grumbling against God. And also what all three of these stories have in common is God patiently, mercifully, and graciously providing. Even to their grumbling. Their grumbly hearts. And this is an old pattern. If you've been paying attention to the story, this is actually an old pattern already. You remember when Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh uh, and first time and asked him to let the people go and he took away their straw to make bricks. And what did they do? They grumbled. When it seems like they're at this dead end at the Red Sea, even though God has just miraculously delivered them out of Egypt, what do they do when they think they're at the dead end at the Red Sea? They grumble. And then when their stomachs start growling on the journey... Not three months, not three months since God did all this miraculous salvation. They grumble. And this is the pattern. This is the pattern, and it actually persists throughout the rest of the Old Testament, and I would say the rest of history. The pattern here for God's people is this, that their own perception of their circumstances became for them the standard by which they based their understanding of reality. Their perception of their circumstances became the standard by which they understood their reality. They thought that reality, ultimate reality, was all they could see right in front of them. So when they get hungry, all they can think is the only end to this is that we're going to die and start. We're going to starve to death and die. So in other words, they, they're still kind of showing zero perception 
of anything resembling a bigger picture. Now, we as the reader, we've seen the bigger picture the whole time because we get that benefit of seeing God at work, right? They still haven't learned that God is above their circumstances, that their circumstances cannot affect who God is and what he's going to do and what he said he's going to do. They still haven't seen that there is something about this God, who he is, what he's done, what he will do, and who we are because of it. They have not seen that those things transcend any circumstance that they find themselves in. And so they grumble. And it's something that doesn't just come from their hearts, uh, from their stomachs. It comes uh, from their hearts. And do you remember, do you remember when we were at the Red Sea? One thing that we made a point to look at at the end of chapter 13, beginning of chapter 14 in Exodus. How did they get here? God led them there. We're explicitly told that where they end up is because the way God was leading in the pillar of cloud and fire. They went wherever it went. They find themselves here because God led them there. Did you catch this in verse four? They get hungry. And so God shows up and says, guess what? I'm going to rain down bread from heaven um, for you and the people. And they shall go out each day and gather a day's portion every day. Why? That I may test them. Do you catch that? We have expected like God just to show up and be like, look, I'm going to provide for them. They're going to know that I'm the provider. But he says, no, I'm going to provide for them. I'm going to give them specific instructions of how to gather it. And I'm going to do this to test them. He's going to use their grumbling to teach them. That's the picture we're getting in Exodus chapter 16 here. And actually, we'll see the same thing in Exodus chapter 20, where Moses says to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. So get this again, we as the reader get to see this once again, that even in the midst of their discontent and their malcontent, really, you could say, God is at work and he's going to do something because he's above their circumstances. So there's this pattern of grumbling. But what also is happening is that there keeps being this pattern of what God is doing in them and through them and for them. He's already saved them, but what he is going to continue to show himself is, is that he is continually saving them. And he uses the wilderness unto that end. He actually uses the wilderness to mold them and make them, to unsettle them, and then to show them that he can bring them comfort. He's going to take them out of this life of oppression that they once knew, and he's going to bring them through the wilderness into reliance and faith upon him. That is what this is all about. He's growing them. He's leading them through this. Uh, C.S. Lewis, I don't know if you read the book Mere Christianity, but a bunch of great things that C.S. Lewis says in that book. Uh, But one of the things he does is he kind of describes God at work in this way as God building a house. He says this. He says, you know, imagine yourself, your life as a living house. And God is going to come in and rebuild it. And at first, when when you invite that in, when you know that that's happening, at first, the things that God does in your life make sense. Fixes some leaks here, some loose shingles here, maybe some faulty gutters there. And it kind of makes sense. Those are things that you knew needed a little work anyway. But then it kind of turns into one of those uh, HTTV shows that they just start ripping things apart. And you have no idea why. You know, flip this house, flip my life, I guess. Um, Starts knocking out walls and fixtures and doors and countertops. And you look at it in your life and you go, this makes no sense. And C.S. Lewis goes on. To say this, he says, the explanation is because he is building a completely different house than you had envisioned. 
He says, you thought you were being made into a decent little cottage that everyone would respect, but he is building a palace, and he intends to come live in it himself. Isn't there any way to think about that, what God is doing in our lives? Because isn't that precisely what he's doing? We are temples of the living God. He is going to come in and take up residence in our lives, and you better believe he's going to throw some stuff around if he needs to. That's what he's doing for them. You have to remember about the people. We've tried to keep this on our brain a little bit as we've gone. God is attempting here to rebuild and reshape a people who are continually haunted by the social, psychological, moral, and spiritual effects of living in slavery. Slavery does that to people. Go figure. And this is... This is what we have to see is that rebuilding a rebuilding work like that is at times going to be uncomfortable and it's at times going to be painful. God doesn't hide that fact. He comes right through with it. And so here's the question for you. Do you imagine if you tonight claim to be a Christian, do you imagine that your life is going to be any different? That when God determines to do something with you, to do something in you. That at times, one, it will make no sense, and two, it might be painful. Look, I don't know what kind of circumstances you bring into this room, your past or your present or whatever. God does not delight in our pain and suffering. God did not delight here in his, in his people's hunger, the fact that they felt empty and despairing. He didn't delight in that. He goes on to prove that in history, right? Because he let pain and suffering kill his own son. So one day he could ultimately uh, do away with it, right? But this is something I want to leave you with here in this first point. Is the next time that you are dealing with pain or sadness or loneliness or anger or something that is just confounding to you in your life. I want you to take a moment, just a moment to ask yourself and ask God really. What is God doing with me? What is happening here and why is he doing it? What is he doing with me? What is he doing in me? Because what I think we're being shown here is that he could be and most likely is trying to expose something for you. So that you can see it clearly and then know what to do with it. So that leads us to the second one here. So grumbling, it comes not just from their stomachs, it comes from their hearts and it exposes uh, some things that they need to deal with and are going to need to deal with as they go forward in this story. But the second thing here is receiving. Um, Four times, if you look at this, four times, maybe even more, verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, and verse 12, we are told explicitly, he repeats it. That God heard their grumbling. God heard their grumbling. God heard their grumbling. That he's going to provide. That in response to their grumbling, he's going to provide because he heard their grumbling. Keeps making this known. Look, I heard your grumbling. I heard your grumbling. I heard your grumbling. I heard your grumbling. If you're a parent, you kind of get this, I think. Um, Not only is God going to provide in response to this grumbling, he's going to provide abundantly. Not only is he going to provide abundantly, but he's also going to command specifically how to receive what he's going to provide. Have you ever noticed this in this story? If you're familiar with this story at all, have you ever read through it and noticed how he very, very specifically says, you have to do this this way. 
I'm going to provide for you, but you have to do it this way, the way that I tell you. Moses made something very clear about this incident in Deuteronomy 8 later on when he kind of rewrites some of these accounts. Moses says this. He says to the people, you shall remember the whole way that your Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. That he might humble you. Testing you to know what was in your heart. Whether you would keep his commandments or not. Do you see what's going on? Do you see what is going on from God's perspective in this event? Because there there might be part of you that wonders, why didn't he just fly off the handle with them? Like, they're idiots. They shouldn't have doubted God at this point. Some of you might be thinking, well, why didn't he just give them the bread? Like, that would have been miracle enough, right? Why all the details? Why all the hoopla? God understood that there was something much bigger going on in the hearts of his people. They didn't see it. They're just living it. They're just emoting it. To Moses and Aaron and to God. And so for their good, because he loved them, he exposes it. He exposes it in the fact, this isn't about being hungry. This is about not believing that I'm going to take care of you. You don't believe it. You've not believed a word I've said. And so I'm going to provide for you, but I'm also going to teach you as I do it. And we see this pretty clearly in the story. First, you know, they lash out against Moses and Aaron. I want you to think about that. Moses and Aaron are the heroes. They're the ones that stood, stared down Pharaoh and told him what the deal was and led them out of Egypt. And they're lashing out at their heroes. And then secondly, did you notice how delusional they are about Egypt? Well, if we're going to die, at least we could have died by our meat pots back in Egypt. Like, Give me a break, right? I mean, they're completely delusional about this. And all of it is serving, as God's exposing, to show this, the deceptive power of sin, which we've already looked at and likened to slavery earlier uh, in this story. Less than three months removed from God toppling the most powerful empire that history had known. He did it before their very eyes. Less than three months after that, they don't think he's going to give them food to eat. And how could they even give a thought of life being better back in Egypt? That is to say, back in slavery. Have you ever known anybody... Uh, known someone that's trying to recover who has or has struggled with an addiction, there's a sense in which this is the language of an addict, is it not? It is. Addicts in one sense know that their addiction is destroying them and the people around them. But in another sense, they are constantly fighting the delusion that life is better under the drug or under the substance or whatever it may be. So what is God going to do? He's going, as we've seen, he's going to provide for them and he's going to test them. But he's going to do it with specific instructions. You're going to do this the way that I tell you to do it. Specifically commands them to gather every single day. Think about, I I really want you to soak this. You got to go out every single day to do this. And then if you try to hoard it, if you try to keep it overnight, it's going to rot and stink. Do it the way that I tell you to do it. I really want you to think about this for a second. Why does he set it up this way? Think for yourself, why does God set it up this way? What could be his purpose? Because if you think about it, Israel already had the evidence 
that God was mighty to save. Israel already had the evidence that he loved them. Israel already had the evidence that he, who he was and what, that he would do uh, what he promised to do. So why the specific daily instructions? Because through these specific daily instructions, he was leading them to participate in an active reminder of those truths. He's telling them every single day, I want you to be reacquainted with the fact that I am providing for you. Every day. I want you to live into this. I want it to become part of your routine. I want it to become part of how you take in life itself during the day by eating. Because God knew this is exactly what they needed. Look at verses 6 and 7. He says, At evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. We saw the same thing with the hardening of Pharaoh, right? Why is God doing this? For his own glory. It's a nice Christian answer, right? Why is God doing this? For his own glory. Well, what in the world does that mean? This is one of my favorite definitions of God's glory uh, by, by Phil Riken. He says this. God's glory is his reputation. It is his honor. It is the weightiness of his character. The sum total of his divine perfections. To know that he is the Lord, therefore is to know him as the God of glory. Did you catch that? To know that he is the Lord, therefore, is to know him as the God of glory. To know that God is in control, to know that God cares, and to know that God is going to do something about it, is to know the glory of this God. That's what it is. So why the specific, maybe tedious instructions? Because God wants them to know who he is. That's it. Moses, go tell the people, I just want them to know who I am. I want them to know. And what the whole story tells, uh, holds forth for us, and what we've seen is, you can take the people out of slavery in an instant. That's what happened. But to take the slavery out of the people is going to take time. That's why God's patient here. That's why he's gracious and merciful here, because he knows that. And this is so true for us as well. You know, we live, we live in a world, I lo- well, I love it. I actually hate it, but it is funny. Sometimes, you know, I'll ask a friend a question, and I really do hate this. Don't do this to me. Now all you're going to do it. When the person says back, man, if only we had something we could ask questions and it would give us answers instantly. You know, we live in a world that our questions and our desires can be answered and satisfied instantly. We want everything instantly. But God's work in us, and he makes no bones about this, God's work in us is not instant. Now, listen to what I said. God's work in us, not for us. God's work for us is instant and ultimate. But his work in us is not instant. And we struggle with that. You know, I've noticed a culture here. And it's not just here. Uh, It's a college thing, right? A lot of you love celebrating your 21st birthday or your friend's 21st birthdays, right? Um, Just because it's a special number that everybody loves, apparently. Um, No. Why do you love your 21st birthday? Because the moment you turn 21, the moment 
you turn 21, you can legally buy and consume alcohol, right? So here's the question. The moment that you wake up when you, on your 21st birthday, do you drink alcohol? I hope not. <laughs> we might need to have a conversation. No. You let your friends plan a party for you. You go maybe out to dinner and you go somewhere to maybe enjoy that first drink that you've ever had in your life, right? <laughs> wink, wink. And you enjoy that day and you enjoy that night and you celebrate it. And you go out with friends and you make it memorable and you're very responsible as you do it, right? Here's the good news of the gospel. That's a great transition. (laughs) Is that when you believe the gospel, you are instantly justified. You are instantly saved. You are instantly made right with God. You are legally and ultimately righteous in God's eyes and free from sin. But just like in real life, it takes time for things that are legally true of us to become true in our experience of it. Just like in real life, it takes time for what is legally true of us to become true in our experiences, in our feelings. These instructions about the life that God is calling us to, He's trying to impress upon them that it's actually beautiful, it's not tedious. Because what he's trying to show them and what he's showing us is that God's rebuilding us in order to make us beautiful. And he knows what it takes. And he even knows that it hurts. But he's going to lead you there. And he wants you to receive it. And he wants you to know how to receive it. And he has given you everything to know how to receive it. In his word. This leads us to the last one here. So there's grumbling, there's receiving. Finally, there's resting. Did you catch this in verse 5? I didn't want to read the whole chapter just because it would have taken a long time. But in verse 5, we're told that on the, sixth, on the sixth day, they're supposed to gather twice as much. And the second half of the chapter actually goes on to explain this. That it's because the seventh day is a Sabbath. It's a holy day unto the Lord. And it has been since that way since the very first week of history when God created all things. And on the seventh day, he rested from all of his works. But again, okay, we know Sunday, Sabbath, that's a thing in the Bible. It's a thing for Christians. But again, in the context of the story, would it really have been that big of a deal for them to go out and get some manna on Sunday morning before church? I mean, I eat my cereal the same way on Sunday morning. I drink my coffee the same way on Sunday morning. Would it really have been that big of a deal? Let me read you something. This is hundreds of years later in the book of Ezekiel. God says this. He says, so I led them out of the land of Egypt and I brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my statutes and I made known to them my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths. As a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Interesting. More over than everything else, I gave them a seventh day to rest. And to rest in the fact, in the truth, in the knowledge that it is I who am at work 
in their very hearts. God takes, this is why, y'all, throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, God takes the Sabbath day very seriously. And what's sad is you read the end of this chapter, they messed that one out too. Okay, he told them not to hoard it, and they hoarded it. And then on the Sabbath day, we're told that a bunch of them go out to find manna, and there's none. So I want you to conceptualize this. God says, hey, I want to give you a day off to rest. And they mess that one up too, y'all. Like, it blows your mind. And I want you to just stop as we wrap this up. Have you ever stopped to think about this for yourself? What is this Sabbath that we're called to? What is this day that is written into the fabric of creation where we are called as a people to stop? A day, a whole day, one in seven, where we are called to stop physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. And it's not just about Netflixing all day, as restful as that may be. Or unrestful, depending on how much time you've spent flipping through it. Have you ever noticed that in the Bible, salvation is sometimes defined as finding your rest in Jesus? Let me read you this from a book called Heaven is Not My Home. The author takes it up and he says this. He says, when we rest, we acknowledge that all of our striving will of itself do nothing Rest means letting the world pass us by for a time. Genuine rest requires acknowledging that God and our brothers and sisters can survive without us. It requires recognizing our own insufficiency and handing over responsibility. It is truly surrendering to the ways of God. It is a moment of celebration when we acknowledge that blessing comes only from the hand of God. This, catch this, this is why rest requires faith. It's also why salvation can be pictured as rest. Because when we rest, we accept God's grace. We do not seek to earn. We receive. We do not justify. We are justified. Are you starting to see, I hope, what this whole story is about? Moses again drives it home in Deuteronomy 8. He says, He humbled you and let you hunger. And he fed you with manna that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. See, already in Deuteronomy, Moses was telling the people, it wasn't about filling your hunger. It was about pointing you to something else. The manna ultimately was about pointing to something else. It was about a word. And what was that word? There's a lot of words, implicit and explicit. But I want you to hone in on verse 12. When all of this happens, what's going to happen? God says, then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. You're going to know. There's a movie about 15 years ago called Cinderella Man. Uh, It's a boxing movie about a real guy named James J. Braddock. Uh, He lived and was a boxer during the Great Depression. At the very beginning of his movie, he lives in uh, New York City during the Great Depression. He's having trouble finding work. Uh, His family's very poor. 
And he comes home from a day of not being able to find a job to find out that his son has stolen from the local butcher. So being a man of integrity, Braddock uh, takes his son straight down to the butcher shop to have him return it. But in the process of doing that, he finds out from his son that the real reason his son stole the food was because his son was scared that he was going to be sent away to live with relatives because his, his parents were having such a hard time feeding him. And so this interchange, this is like the first 15 minutes of the movie. The first, so he, this interchange, Braddock leans down to his son and he says this. We don't steal. Ever. Give me your word. To which his son says, I promise. To which Braddock looks back to him and says, And I promise that I will never send you away. And he sticks out his hand to shake his son's hand. And his son jumps into his arms weeping. You see what Braddock was telling his son, right? He's saying, we don't steal. Not because of some threat of you being sent away. But because you are mine. And nothing will ever take you away from me. Do you remember the crowds coming to Jesus in John chapter 6? They say to him as they're trying to process his claims and the fact that he had just fed the 5,000 a couple of days before. They say to him, okay, so what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our father ate the manna in the wilderness. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. So Jesus says this to them. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. This story, the rest of the Bible, the gospel, Jesus himself, it's asking the question Are you hungry? Jesus provides. That's it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you give us hearts to believe and understand that you do indeed and have indeed provided all that we could possibly need. That you satisfy our deepest deepest longings and you fill our every need. We praise you and we love you. To your name we pray. Amen.